Well, I want you to notice this passage of Scripture, uh, Luke chapter 19. And I want you to notice in verse 38, uh, Luke 19, verse 38, they, have, they, they quote from a psalm. That psalm, if you look, is at the bottom of the page. That is A, it says 38, Psalm 118, 26. Now, while you're still there, I want you to look at the opposite page, over there on page 1633, and this happened later in the week. This is on Palm Sunday, but later in the week, I want you to look over there at verse 17. When Jesus asked people the question, he said, what is the meaning of that which is written? And, and look at that. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now look at the, look at the reference below. Where does that come from? Where does that quote come from? If you look at the bottom of the page. The stone the builders rejected. Where is that taken from? Psalm 118. Now that is a big, big clue. Psalm 118 is a very, very, very important psalm. And we're going to look there now, if you will turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is what is called the halal. The halal is the great set of hymns that are sung before the Passover. The great halal. And if you're there on page 956, page 956, uh, you will see these. And you, you see, looking at verse 22 for a moment. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So you see that. And then you look down on page 957 where he says, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, when Jesus and his disciples ate the last Passover, the last legal Passover, I want to get that point across. The last time the Passover was legally and acceptably performed in God's eyes, was on this occasion. The Lord Jesus Christ celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and then he lifted out of the Passover celebration of the Exodus two elements. He lifted out of it the bread, the matzah, and he lifted out of it the fifth cup of wine. Do you know they drank five cups of wine? They drank it out of a common cup, and they drank it mixed with water. But their last cup, and that's why when you read the Gospels, sometimes you see a cup before the bread, and sometimes you see a cup after the bread. There was a fourth cup, and then a fifth cup. So the fifth cup, nobody got drunk, because they shared, and that's the biblical way, they shared the common cup, and I'm not going to impose it on you, don't worry. I'm a, I'm a, a liberal <laughs> when it comes to ceremonies. I'm a liberal when it comes to ceremonies. We can celebrate the Lord's Supper with shot glasses of grape Kool-Aid and little pieces of bread. Just as legitimately as we can following the biblical and only biblical example of a common cup of wine 
mixed with a little water, and the matzah, the unleavened bread. So again, when it comes to ceremonies, as I weigh the scriptures and I see that there are things that are really important and things that aren't so important, how people are baptized, who's baptized, I'm a liberal on that. How they do the Lord's Supper, I'm a liberal on that. What does that mean? It means that I'm not going to bind anybody's conscience by what I believe. That's up to you. So again, I'm happy to have grape Kool-Aid and cookies. It's okay, but not hamburgers and milkshakes. As a friend of mine who was raised in a very liberal denomination said that they once celebrated the Lord's Supper with hamburgers and milkshakes. No, 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 no. Okay, so Jesus lifts out of the Old Testament Passover, the fifth cup of wine and the matzah, the bread, and he places them down in the new covenant. That was the last time in the eyes of God, under the blessing of God, under his promise of blessing and fulfillment, it was, has ever been celebrated on our planet since. Now we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The feast in terms of the first day of the week. So now what I want you to see here is this. This is so important as we look at this psalm number uh, on page 957. He talks there about the stone the builders rejected. He talks about blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is part of what is called the halal. After Jesus and his disciples had celebrated the Passover and the Lord's Supper, it says, and after they had supped, they sang a hymn. What did they sing? I like to sing Amazing Grace because you, you and I don't memorize the Psalms. But they sang a portion of this halal. This is what they're singing. This is what they're singing after they had the Passover, after they had the Lord's Supper, they went out and sang a hymn. So this is one of the hymns found in the book of Psalms. Do you know the book of Psalms has songs in it? It has hymns in it, and it has psalms in it. What is a psalm? The word psalm comes from a word that means to strum a guitar. So a psalm is a song or a hymn that's sung to musical accompaniment of a guitar. I guess you can pound on uh, on piano keys to get those chords as well. So that's a psalm. Now, I want you to look at this because this is such a central psalm. This is the psalm that they're singing as Jesus is going to be crucified. Now, let's look at something else here. We know this is a psalm that has a very key relationship to David. I want you to look at verse 10. Psalm 118, verse 10. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed me around like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, this is really interesting. I want you... We'll come back here. I want you to turn to page 450 and let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and, uh, and, and verse 27. Page 450. All right. 1827. 
What do we read here? We read in the first sentence at the top of the page, 450, 1 Samuel 18:27. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. What in the world does this have to do with Jesus? What in the world does this have to do with Psalm 118? I'll tell you exactly what it has to do. Psalm 118 literally says this, reading back from page 956, but we're going back over there. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut off their foreskins. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut off their foreskins. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut off their foreskins. That's what Psalm 118 says. What? I never heard that before. You never heard that before because most people want to to make up a word instead of the obvious words that's used here. The word that's used in Psalm 118 has to do with with what a person does to a male child who's Jewish on that child's eighth day. That is to remove the foreskin. Now, if we go back to 1 Samuel 17 and we turn back to page 449, we'll see some interesting things. Do you know that many of the Jewish people, uh, many of their neighbors, practiced circumcision just as the Jews did? Many. But there was one group of people who did not practice circumcision. And who were those people? Those were the people who were related to the Phoenicians, who may have come from Crete. They're called the Philistines. The Philistines did not practice circumcision at all. Now, if you look back here on page 449, uh, 1 Samuel 18.10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. And when that evil spirit from God, remember, here's a man who may or may not have been a believer. I don't know whether he was or wasn't. If a person is born again, that person can never lose the Holy Spirit. But people who are not believers do receive an anointing to do work and ministry and service. They do. God anointed the kings of Israel so that they would have special ability to serve him by protecting his people. Were all of those anointed kings believers? Certainly not. Not Ahaz, not Ahab. Many of them were not. So there was a special anointing for those who would lead God's people. Now notice when Saul rebelled against God, he gave him over to demonic spirits. That's what you read in verse 10. I know, Bob, this is so much weird stuff. You've got the weirdest stuff in your preaching I ever heard anywhere. That's okay. I don't mind being weird. Anyhow, you read there that while David is playing, uh, it says Saul, the end of verse 10, had a spear in his hand. He hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. And he tried it twice. So anyhow, uh, David uh, leaves and Saul decided to get him out of his sight. He hated David so much. He wanted him dead. Anyhow, so in verse 17, 
Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. You got the picture? Saul wanted David dead, but he didn't, he, he didn't want to be guilty of murder, even though he was in his rage. He would have murdered David had David not been very fast on his feet. He wanted David dead. And it's just like politicians today. They arrange for other people to do their dirty work, unless they're just complete fools. And so, anyhow... Let the Philistines do that. Notice verse 18. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So anyhow, when the time came and Saul, instead of giving her to David, gave her to uh, Adriel of Maholoth, uh, Maholah. Now look at verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Look at what he says. What a wicked guy. I mean Saul. Saul, would you like him to be president? Hmm. Would you like Saul to be your father-in-law? Absolutely not. Look at what he says. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so Saul says to David... You have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Anyhow, then Saul, remember, I remember the, uh, the greatest whisperer in Louisiana politics was Earl Long. And Earl Long never, said, never say something that you can, uh, you can whisper. And it's never whisper if you can do a nod. And never do a nod if you can do a wink. Anyhow, so here you go. Saul, verse 22, ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you now become his son-in-law. Verse 23, they repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So as we look back on page 956 in Psalm 118, the great halal, it means hallelujah, in other words, and in this psalm, sometimes God's name, which is Yahweh, is abbreviated to Yah. And hallelujah means praise Yah. Hallelujah means praise Yah. So in this great psalm that begins in verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. Notice the very end, verse 29, ends with the same words. Give thanks to the Lord for His good. His love endures forever. And so as we read through this psalm, we're struck with things, and we have to reflect on David, whose life is recounted here in verses 10 through 12. But you realize David did not fulfill this psalm. Nor did the later kings of Israel, that is the kings of, uh, in Jerusalem, fulfill this psalm because it was evidently used as a psalm to celebrate the king 
over the centuries, the sons of David as their kings. And that's why uh, when there are things that happen there and it says, um, for example, uh, in verse uh, in verse twenty, uh, you can picture the, saw, the the kings of Jerusalem uh, saying this: "This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter." And so this is celebrated. You see, the kings. This is an enthronement psalm. This is the great Hallel. This is the psalm just before Jesus is crucified. This is the psalm that celebrates the Passover and the enthronement of the King. And you see there in verse 22, the throne, the, the stone re, the builders rejected has become the capstone. They didn't know what they were doing. And you can kind of picture people building something. And have you ever, have you ever put together something? I recently put together an office chair. It was the easiest office chair I've ever put together, even though it was made in China. Whoever wrote it must have had help must have had help inside this country. I don't know, maybe the person worked in the White House. I don't know. But it was the easiest chair I ever put together. The directions were crystal clear, and there were diagrams and pictures. And, you know, I like pictures. And so there it was. It was easy. And, you know, I ordered it directly from the most famous place in Arkansas, Bentonville, home of Walmart. And they shipped it from Bentonville actually shipped it from China. And so, but it was easy. Have you ever been putting something together? I have to confess my foolishness. I'm one of those idiots who tries to put things together before I read the directions. Are you married to a man like that? And what happens, what happens when you put something together without reading the directions? You got it all done and you've hammered this thing on here and you've tightened this on there and then all of a sudden you say, what's this? What am I supposed to do with this? And you see, this is the picture. They're building something and they've got a stone that doesn't quite fit. And then they realize it's the capstone. It's the stone that when you have an arch... It's the one that goes in the dead center at the top to hold the whole thing together. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. And what is he saying? What's he saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to his own people on that Palm Sunday, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to his own people on that Palm Sunday, offering to be their king, is rejected because he doesn't fit in with our idea of kingship. We want no part of him. Not this man, not this man that created a whip out of ropes and drove out the animals. Not this man that overturned the, the tables of the money changers, not this man. We don't want this man. And so they cast aside this stone. But the Lord Jesus Christ, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is the capstone of all of Scripture. He's the central ingredient. He's the most important part. And they, the builders, rejected Christ because He didn't fit into their ideas. And we have to be careful that we don't kick Jesus aside because he doesn't fit into our ideas. Now notice what's said here further. Look at verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. 
when my wife and I pray every day, before we pray together the Lord's Prayer and then intercede for other people, we always make this affirmation. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Wow. You know, I said last week when we observed the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn. We actually sang that. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. And so this is the song. This is the day the Lord has made. But this day, that Palm Sunday and that Good Friday and that Holy Saturday, that day is the Lord's day in a very special way. And notice what else he says here. Look at verse 25. Oh, Lord, save us. Do you realize what they're crying out on Palm Sunday? When the little children cry out, when the disciples cry out, never forget who these people were as Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem. Never forget, these people that are shouting all these things have seen something absolutely amazing. What they've seen is the Lord Jesus Christ stood outside the tomb of Lazarus who had been dead for four days and was stinking and he told them, roll the stone away. And then he shouted, Lazarus, come forth! And the dead men came out. These people saw that. They saw that. You can fake miracles, but you can't fake raising a dead man, especially one that's stinking from four days in the tomb. They'd seen that. So this is a crowd of people that is full of excitement and wonder. Wow, man, this must be the Messiah. Wow, wow. And so as he rides on the child of a donkey down the Mount of Olives, they're waving their palm branches, they're throwing their garments in the way, and they're shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're also saying in verse 25 that precedes it, O Lord, save us. O Lord, deliver us. We are under this Roman yoke. Lord, from the time that your people were sent into captivity to Babylon in 586 B.C., we've been under somebody's yoke, some foreign power's oppression. Since 586, and now after all, these, after all of these centuries, being under the yoke of foreigners, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, after all of these foreign oppressors, Lord, deliver us from these wicked people who tax us and terrorize us and rule over us and crush us and take away all our rights, prerogatives, and privileges. So they're saying, as Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is that on that day, that Palm Sunday, the Lord Jesus Christ offered himself to the... Israeli and Jewish people, remember the Jews are the tribe of Judah and all of the rest are Israel. He offered himself to them. But what? He offered himself to them. But what? He offered himself to them, but he didn't fit in their plans because their vision was the Messiah was going to come riding in on a white horse like the kings of the pagans, not on a donkey. They wanted a Messiah who would come in and kick the Romans out. 
kill them, wipe them out. They wanted a warrior, a conqueror, who would defeat all their enemies, literally and in a bloodthirsty way, getting revenge, just like King Saul. The same spirit that was in King Saul seems to have begun to possess the people at this point. We want somebody to kill our enemies. We want somebody to wipe them out. And that one knew Jesus was. He was meek. What does that mean? It meant simply this. He put other people ahead of himself. He put your needs ahead of his own needs, ahead of his own privileges, ahead of his own rights. He gave up the glory of heaven to become a real human being like us, except for sin. To give us what we could never get, what we could never earn. And so the Lord Jesus Christ goes into Jerusalem and he sees the city. And what do we read in the scriptures in Luke 22? When he saw the city, he began to weep over it. You know, God loves people. And he loves people who are outwardly connected to him by covenant in a very special way. He wept. He sobbed over it. He said, if you only knew what's coming on you. If you only knew what's about to happen. But it's been hidden from your eyes. He loved the Jewish people. He was Jewish. He loved the temple. He loved the city of God, Jerusalem. But he knew it was going to be wiped out, never to be rebuilt again. You know that to this day, the temple has been destroyed. It was destroyed 40 years after Jesus uttered these words. 40 years, and it's never been rebuilt. It will not be rebuilt. It will not be rebuilt. Because the temple of God, once the Messiah was offered to His people and rejected, the temple of God became an abomination in the eyes of God. And so 40 years later, the temple was destroyed. People say, well, you know, we're living in times of prophetic fulfillment because the Jewish people are back in the land. Jewish people do not control where the temple was built. That's the one place in Jerusalem they have no control over. I remember when I was in Jerusalem in the year 2000 with my preacher son-in-law. We were warned, don't let those people see us praying. We cannot gather in a group and pray. We cannot sing. You must be quiet. You have to show respect to the people that control the Temple Mount, who are the Muslims, because the site of the temple is the third holiest site in Islam. And if anybody dares to try to rebuild a Jewish temple, they will ignite World War III. They will ignite it, because the entire Ummah, the entire nation of Islam, from Saudi Arabia and Yemen, all the way over into Pakistan, and Indonesia, the entire Muslim nation will rise up as one man to destroy whoever attempts to do that. They may attempt it. They may succeed. Nuclear bombs may fall on Mecca and Medina. I'm telling you, it will ignite World War III. The Jewish people still don't control the temple because the temple of God in the eyes of God became an abomination when Jesus was crucified and God showed His divine 
revelation about it when what happened as Jesus died. As He gave up the ghost, as He surrendered His life, as He then descended into hell in His spirit and His body's taken down from the cross. When that Roman spear pierced His side, his, uh, side and blood and water came out. What divine miracle occurred? The veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And that signified, it's over folks. This thing has left desolate. This wonderful, beautiful house built under Solomon and then rebuilt after the return of the captives from the Babylonian captivity finished in 516, remodeled under Herod the Great. This magnificent building became an abomination to the sight of God and he caused it to be destroyed. Why? Because the king came and he offered himself to his people and he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. But they didn't want it. They wanted a king on a white charger. They wanted a king to get revenge like King Saul wanted revenge. They didn't want meek and mild Jesus lowly riding on a colt, the son of a female donkey. They didn't want such a savior. You see, because there are two motifs in biblical prophecy in the Old Testament. The conquering king and the suffering servant. And it was by Jesus becoming the suffering servant, dying on the cross for our sins, that he became the conquering king. And he is in the business now from the day of Pentecost on conquering the nations, bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ and making those nations part of his own people. Because a remnant of Israel is saved, and God adds to that remnant the nations of the world. So the invitation comes to you on Palm Sunday. Will you join and become part of the Israel of God because He adopts Gentiles to be among His people? Will you come and join? Will you bow your knees to the King of kings and Lord of lords? Will you submit to Him as your Lord? And will you also take your own righteousness which is as filthy rags contaminated by organic human waste. And will you cast those filthy rags of your own good works, your own righteousness aside, and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? For Jesus is the only hope of the world. May we pray. Lord, would you bless this message as we visualize the events that began on Palm Sunday and climaxed when Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you that he did rise from the dead. Thank you that his gospel invitation is extended today to people who live in Jerusalem who are literal physical descendants of Abraham, whether they're Arabs or Jews, and that that invitation is extended to us, even to us here in Texarkana, Arkansas and Texas, and around the world, whosoever will. Lord, we thank you that we can accept your invitation, and that we can be born again, and we are effectually called by your Spirit, sealed with your Spirit. Lord, the new birth makes us children of God and children of Abraham. May nobody here today leave without finally deciding to choose you. We choose you because you first chose us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.